You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Well, um, good morning and happy new year. I want to ask the tech team if they can turn on the the back screen for me, please. Um, There we go. Thank you. Oh, it was on. Thank you so much for being here today. And we are talking this day about what we're going to be talking about this year. And we have, can have 2020 vision just like our children. We can see things that God wants us to see with our physical eyes, also with our spiritual eyes. God wants us to use them wisely. Now, you've all heard the saying, keep your eye on the ball, right? Keep your eye on the ball. That's, a, that's a, a, a way of being able to tell us that we need to concentrate so that we can do and complete the things that are done for us. So like um, over here, I have a, a football, right? And I remember when I was a young boy, I would play catch with my dad. And he would throw the ball to me. And he would say, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. And that's what we need to do this year. We're going to keep our eyes on Jesus just like we would keep our eye on the ball. Now, it's not easy. It's not easy. Because when you're practicing and somebody throws you the ball, like my dad would throw it to me, that wasn't too hard. But when you're about to get hit, when you're about to get crushed by a defender, it's harder to keep your eye on the ball. Now, I know for all of us, when we go out into the world, we have a lot of enemies. We have people who want to knock us down. We have people who want to crunch us, just like that defender. But we still have to learn to keep our eye on the ball. When I was trying to learn how to uh, play baseball in Little League, what did my coach say when I was at bat? He would say, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on baseball. Because if I was at bat, I needed to be able to see the ball coming, hopefully, to hit the bat. I needed to keep my eyes on the ball, just like the softball player does. She needs to keep her eye directly on the ball. And the reason is they want to make contact. They want, in football, to be complete. And that's what God wants for you and for me. He wants us to be complete. He wants us to be completed in Jesus. But he also wants us to make contact with him. He wants us to be in contact with Jesus so that we will be complete. And as we are complete, we'll be in touch with him. And so this is what we are going to be learning for ourselves as adults this year, throughout the year, of how we can have 2020 vision by keeping our eyes on Jesus. The writer of Hebrews helps us by using the same metaphors for us, of using sports metaphors. And so we see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Would you stand with me and read this with me together? Let's begin. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful man so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is God's will for us, that we not grow weary and that we not lose heart, but we must learn to fix our eyes on Jesus. And that's our theme for the year, and that's the title for today's message. Please be seated. So how do we do this? How do we keep our eyes on Jesus? The first thing that the writer says is that we need to get rid of everything that slows us down. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The writer tells us that we ought to be encouraged. The writer tells us that we ought to be encouraged because we are actually surrounded by a large group of people who are rooting us on. The picture that the writer here has for us is a picture of like the Olympic Games in a great coliseum or in an amphitheater with people all around watching us. People, like if we looked at the first, the chapter right before Hebrews 12, we would see that's called the hall of faith. The hall of faith, or the, the hall of fame of faith. And these are people in the Old Testament, people like Moses, people like Abraham, people like Noah, who had their faith strong on Jesus. And it talks about people who were successful because they had their faith. They even saw people rise from the dead. But it also talks about people who, because of their faith, they endured suffering. And so faith was needed to have victory so that they would be able to enjoy the gifts that God gave to them. But faith was also needed so that they could endure hard trials and that they could even die for God. The word witnesses, when we see it here, the cloud of witnesses, that word witnesses is the same word that we get our word martyr from. They were willing to die for God. And they are now this cloud of witnesses watching us. And cloud is a beautiful metaphor of thinking of all of these great saints who had so much faith that they are watching us, they are encouraging us. They are seeing how we have been able to go through trials and be successful, and they're rooting us on. But also, we are looking at them. We are looking at these cloud of witnesses, the Moseses, the Abrahams, those who suffered, those who went through difficult times, those who were willing to give their all to Jesus, their all to God. And we also are looking at them. So they are witnesses to us of God's goodness, but they also witness and watch us as we are going through our lives. And so we have this great encouragement. And then the writer says, therefore, let us, let us. So we're going to see that three times in this passage, we'll see those two words, let us. And it's a verb form in the New Testament that's used to be what's called a exhortation. It's called hortatory. But it means to exhort and to strongly absor uh, uh, 
to strongly exhort someone to join them in doing something that is possible that would help them to be able to be in a desired place in their life. And so it's a very strong, it's a very inviting, and it's a very promising invitation. And the writer says, I want you to join me in running with perseverance. And to do this, to be able to run the best you can, the writer says, the first thing we must do is we must throw off or lay aside everything that hinders us. We have to be willing to take off. These things don't necessarily have to be sinful things. He talks about that later. But first he says everything, everything that keeps us from walking and running with God. God wants us to be light, to travel light. He doesn't want a load. We can't run if there's a load on our back. And there are so many things that can load us down, right? There's so many things in this world that can keep us from following Jesus the way we want. But we want to strip down and be light so we can run fast. Um, in my gym in Orange County, before I moved out here, uh, there was this sign that I, I really liked. And it was uh, right on the door as you're exiting the locker room. And the first one says lockers are to be used daily and during workouts. Only unauthorized locks be clipped away. But it's the other one that I really thought was really cool. Don't forget to put on clothes before exiting. I just thought that was cool. Because, you know, there's showers in there. And a lot of times you shower and you change. And they're saying, don't forget to, to put on your clothes. Right? Well, I think Paul would say the opposite to us. Or the writer of Hebrews, I'm sorry, not Paul. He would say, I want you to take off your clothes before entering into your day. So that you are light. Or the clothes in that case would be these burdens. The clothes would be the things that can keep us from following God. And as I talk to people and even in my own life, what are these things that can keep me from following God? They're things that I worry about. They're things where I do have to spend my day doing things to take care of my family, but sometimes they become all-consuming. They can also be the very thing that we talked about earlier, sports. Sports can keep us away from God if we get too involved in them. Other things, technology, can keep us away from God if we get too involved with them. God wants us to be light. He wants us to be able to do the things that he called us to do by focusing and keeping him as our priority, to get rid of anything that's going to keep us from following Jesus. So he asked that question to us, and he asked it to me, and he asked it to you. And God says, are you willing to let go of everything that keeps you from following me? That will help us to see Jesus better this year as we learn to let go of these things. But then, of course, the writer also says that we have to stay away from sin. We have to stay away from the sins that so easily entangle us. Have you ever noticed that it's really easy to sin? And have you ever noticed that when you say, you know, I'm never going to do it again, that you say later on, I'm never going to do it again? Because sin is so easy. 
Have you ever made, and especially here at the beginning of the year, a resolution? And you really do mean it. There's no doubt you mean it. But then you don't do it. It was so easy to forget. It was so easy not to follow through. It's going to not be easy to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because it's too easy to get our eyes off of him. And so the question that the writer's asking us is, how committed are you? How faithful will you be? And the best thing that I can say is, again, that saying that, the, that if you fall off your horse, just get back on it. We are going to have times where we easily get distracted or we may fall into sin. But the writer says we have to get rid of it. We have to be determined to not sin. We have to be determined to follow after the Lord. We have to be determined to get into this race that God wants us. He wants us to be Christians first and foremost. That we have to get rid of the sin of unbelief. We need to be invited by God and we are to be part of his team. That we can have a life of meaning. And we can live a life where we see that we're in a race and there's a finish line that we're aiming for. And we want to get to that finish line, not be disqualified. And just to finish is to win. And God knows that that's not easy. And so he tells us, I want you to do the second thing, to keep your eyes on me. And that is to keep going, even or especially when it's hard. In the second half of verse 2, we see the second, let us. And the writer says, let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Let us run. Let us continue to seek after God. And this running then is a picture of perseverance. It's a picture of going the whole distance that God wants us to run. It's a picture of a long-distance runner, a marathon runner, not giving up. And the reason that he needs his exhortation is that it's going to get harder as he goes. Anybody can start a marathon, right? Any one of us here can start a marathon. How many of us could finish it? It takes training. John Ortberg says it this way, to run our marathon in life for God, it doesn't take trying. See, we could all, right now, I don't know, how many, of any? we have some marathon runners here, anybody willing to admit one, two, three, okay, we got some marathon runners here, so, so could you just all of a sudden just run a marathon the desire, when you have the desire? No, you could try all you want, but you're not going to get through those, what, 26 miles, what we need to do is train. We need to train. And John Artbrook says that's the goal of the Christian life. Not to keep trying, but to keep training. God wants us to be trained, and he trains us through the times that we're going through difficulty. Now, we don't like that, but isn't it interesting? It's almost, it is paradoxical that when we're going through difficult times, that's when we need the Lord the most. But also when we're going through difficult times, that's where we learn how to hold on to the Lord more powerfully. 
That we need these trials. We need these difficulties. We need to face things that are hard so that we can run with God and not give up. That we will be able to seek Him and continue to walk with Him even though it's hard. And Jesus wants us to do this. He wants us to continue. Even Jesus had to go through these hard times. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Even Jesus suffered. And it was through that suffering that he learned to turn to his father for strength, but he also grew in obedience. He grew as a son. And we grow as sons and daughters. God has appointed to us a path of life to live. And the writer says that this race has been marked out for us. God has chosen the life that you have in front of you right now for you to walk. He has chosen a life for you to be able to continue to run with him. He's marked out the path and he wants you to stay in the lanes. He wants you to go the whole distance and he is going to go with you. But you and I, we have to continue to keep on going. We have to keep on going even when it's hard. We have to keep on going, especially when it's hard because there's a reward Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. God has promised us that he will reward us. But it's our job to fix our eyes on Jesus and to keep on going. The third thing, and the third... Um, Let us, here, begins at verse 2. And there it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. In other words, let us concentrate on our relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Just before worship, we had our ace adult Sunday school class. And um, Elder Sandy was teaching us from Philippians um, about how we can continue to walk with God. And he asked us a question. He said, what's the difference between knowing God and knowing about God? What's the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus? The difference is that one is just simply in the head. We can love the Bible. We can read the Bible. We can memorize the Bible and still not enjoy a relationship with Jesus. Because we need to know Jesus. We need to know him personally. I just don't want to know about my wife. I want to know her. She didn't want to just know about me when we first started dating, though we were dating through letters. She didn't want to just know about me through those letters. Fortunately, she wanted to be with me so we could go out on dates. The dating process was sharing, was the knowing about one another while knowing each other. It was putting them together. And this is what God wants for you and for me. He wants us to put it all together. To not just know Jesus, but to know about Jesus because he's a person. He's a person just like we are people. 
And we are to fix our eyes on this person. And again, just using this metaphor for the last time today, when I first met Carol, my eyes were just fixed on her. And couldn't get my eyes off of her. And now this is what God wants us to do with Jesus. He wants us to fix our eyes on him and not take our eyes off of him. The word fix literally means to stare at. To stare at. Now most of the time, like, if I were to ask you to stare at somebody right now, you're all like, you're all staring at me. Um, that could be uncomfortable, right? Somebody just stares at you like, what's up? Well, God likes it when we stare at him. And this word stare, you go deeper into its meaning. It means you stare at them so that you can discern, so that you can mentally understand the person that you're looking at, to concentrate on them. And Jesus loves us so much. He loves us so much that he is willing to begin and end with us throughout our lives. He's willing and eager to be with us every moment of our lives because he is the author of our lives, the writer says. Jesus is the author. He's the writer. He's the creator. He thought of you. He loved you. He made you the way you are. And God wants us to stare and to be in love with his creator. But he also is the perfecter of us. He's the perfecter of the most important part of us. And that is our spiritual part that is received by faith. He is the finisher of our lives. Can you imagine getting to the end of your life and then asking this question, did I, did I do what was right or did I waste my life? Is there anything to show it? After all that I've lived, was it worth it? The worst thing that could happen would be to get to the end of life, not know Jesus. Maybe you know about him, but you don't know him in your heart. Look back on your life and go, I don't think it was worth it. I had lots of money. I had lots of acclaim. I won lots of awards. I bought lots of things. I saw lots of places. I was really comfortable in life. I worked hard for it. But it wasn't worth it because now I'm going to leave it all behind. But to the person who has faith, and he can come to the end of his life, or she can come to the end of her life, and she can look back on everything, and she had pluses and she had minuses. Maybe she looks back and she goes, you know what? There were probably more minuses than pluses, but you know what? Jesus is about to receive me. I am going to be in his presence. I am going to be with the one that I've been looking at. I've been looking and waiting to see him. There's a story of a lady who was born blind, but she came to know Jesus. And at the end of her life, she was so excited to die. And she said, you know what? The first thing I'm ever going to see after I die will be the first thing I've ever seen. And the first thing I'm ever going to see is Jesus. And God wants us to have a passion and a desire to know this author, this perfecter, this finisher. 
and to see him now and to long to see him more because it's going to give us joy. And Jesus had joy. But his joy was also in the suffering. The Bible says that, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Where did Jesus' joy come from? It came from knowing that he came to do the Father's will. He was on the cross. He could look back at his life, and he could know he did everything perfectly in the Father's will, including suffering and dying for us. The joy that he had on the cross, I believe, was also for you and for me, the joy of knowing that we could get to know him, the joy of knowing that millions and millions of people will come to know him and be in his presence in eternity forever. It was the joy of knowing that he had provided a way for the whole world to be saved. It was the joy of knowing that everybody's sin could be forgiven. It was the joy of knowing that even though he was going through great, great suffering, he would be able to bring all of these people into glory with him who had faith in him. And they and we will know a joy beyond anything that we've ever known on earth in heaven when we are with him in his kingdom. And so because of that, the Bible says, Jesus scorned the cross. Jesus scorned the cross. It means he thought very little of it. It didn't matter to him in the sense that what mattered most was that he was going to be on this cross for you and for me. And he was willing to go through that. He was willing to suffer for us. It was the greatest suffering in history. The cross was the most important event in history. It was the raising of Jesus on the cross so that he could take God's wrath for you and me that we don't have to suffer. And in that way, it was the biggest, biggest deal ever. And God wants us to still place our eyes on the cross. He wants the cross to be the stimulus for you and for me to put our eyes on Jesus. He wants us in this way to be cross-eyed. God wants you and me, he wants all of us to be cross-eyed, to keep our eyes on the cross. What will it take for you and for me to keep our eyes on the cross? What will it take for you and for me to be able to decide that we want what Jesus offers. We always have to make a choice. We're going to have to make a choice about what we look at. We're going to have to make a choice about what we want to see in life. We're going to have to make a choice about how we improve our vision. Now, as I said to the children, I've been wearing glasses for 90% of my life about. And uh, this is, you know, something that I had to do by going to an optometrist. And, um, and so I, I went to the optometrist and... Um, back then they didn't have these really nice fancy equipments. They would just, the doctor would open up a case and he'd bring out different, you know, pieces of glass and he'd put them in these glasses that you wear. But now they have this thing and um, you've probably all been on that. It's, it's, uh, from what I'm told, it's called a, a foropter and it measures our eyesight for us. And you know what the, the doctor does, right? The optometrist does. They, they, you, they put you back there and then they show you that the, the numbers or the letters and they say, which one's clear, number one or number two, right? Number one 
or number two. And you have to decide. And a lot of times they're really close. And so they do it again. Now, I think this is a great metaphor for you and me. Because we are going to have to make choices in this world. Now, sometimes it's going to be really clear. One, the other. It's going to be, oh, very clear, doctor. It's, it's number two. But other times you're going, wow, you know, it's pretty hard to tell. And I think sometimes temptation is so great in our lives, it's pretty hard for us to discern the difference. But God wants us to discern. Now, the first one that maybe God would want us to say is number one. Jesus says, when anyone hears news of the kingdom and doesn't take it in, it just remains on the surface. And so the evil one comes along and plucks it right out of that person's heart. This is the seed that the farmer scatters on the road. And so Jesus is kind of giving a vision test here to his disciples. And he's telling them a parable. A parable about a farmer who scatters seed on the soil. And there's four types of soil. And each, one, each of these soils represents how well the person really perceives and sees God. And this first person, number one, he, he sees it. He might know it, but he doesn't take it in. It just stays on the surface. Now I hope that that's None of you. But you would know if you would remember that there was a time in your life that the reality of Jesus was that he was within you because you had established a faith relationship with him. You had believed in him. And you decided, you know what? I don't think maybe that's the right one. Maybe it's number two. Number two, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whoever believes my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And so the number one was a person who only knew about Jesus, but the seed remained on the outside. But the number two is the person who says, you know what? I want to have Jesus on the inside. I want to receive him by believing in him. And God says that that person has eternal life. That person is not condemned. That person has crossed over from death to life. So which one are you? Number one or number two? The doctor puts up another set of glasses and, and he says to us, there's, there's one who received the seed that fell on rocky places, and that is the man or the woman who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since he has no root, he only lasts for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. So this is the number one. This number one person is somebody who says, you know what, I want, I want it on the inside, and they get all excited at first, but then trials come, troubles come. And they decide, you know, it's really not worth it to follow after God. It's too hard. It's too hard to obey. And so they fall away. But Jesus says there can be a number two. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And so number one was the person who got all excited. But when troubles came, they're like, oh, I don't think I can do that. But number two was, you know what? The troubles are here. The troubles are difficult. 
But it's worth it. It's worth it to stick with Jesus. It's worth it because he has given to me his righteousness. And even though I am suffering because of my faith in him, I know there is a kingdom and there is a heaven waiting for me. And I will persevere to the end so that my faith in Jesus is strong and my vision of Jesus is clear. And then the heavenly doctor puts another screen in front of us. And he says, number one, this is the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns and is the man or the woman who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out, making it unfruitful. And so number one is the person who's decided that, you know what, I, I really want to focus in on this world. And there's so much wealth in this world that I can have. But as they pursue the wealth of this world, and the wealth could be many things. It could be money. It could be acclaim. It could be success. It could be pleasing people. But it's, it's this person who says, you know, that's what's important to me. But because they want that, they end up worrying. Because it's, it's impossible to ever be satisfied with that. And so worry takes the place of satisfaction. And, and they, 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 they keep doing it, though. And what happens is eventually that worry is just like a thorn and it, it puts them away and they don't perceive and they don't see Jesus and they don't grow in relationship to him. But then there is the number two. And this is the person who decides, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, those things that I worried about, God will take care of them. He'll give me what I need. Therefore, I will not worry. And this verse really convicts me because I still worry. I still worry and I, I still struggle. I'm not perfect. But this is what I want. I keep getting back up on the horse and I keep trying. And I hope that for each one and every one of us that we would want the kingdom of God. And where we find that we are worrying, that's actually a good reminder to us of turning back to God. Why am I worrying? Am I worrying because I haven't placed the kingdom of God first? Am I worrying because I'm seeking the things of this world and not the things of God? But to the person who says, you know what, I want to see Jesus, they'll keep getting back up on their horse and they'll continue to seek the kingdom of God. They'll continue to say, God, I want you. I know I'm worrying, but I don't want to. I want to work through that. I want to trust you. I want to have faith in you. I want to see you so that when I see you, I know you'll take care of everything and I don't need to worry. And then there's this last one where the doctor says, well, is it number one? And here, these are the people who hear the words of Jesus, but they don't put it to practice. And they are like a foolish man or a foolish woman who, who built their house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and the beat against the house, and it fell with a great clash. This is the person who got to the end of their life, and they looked back, and it wasn't worth it. Because they never put into practice the things that they had heard about what God said, or what Jesus taught. This is the person who has chosen just to go their own way, and not follow hard after God. But to the person who wants to follow hard after God, there is a number two. And Jesus says, everyone, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, their streams rose, and the winds blew and the beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. This is the person who gets to the end of their life and they've decided, you know what, it was worth it. I put my eyes on Jesus. I chose to look at him throughout my life. I chose to be the person that he wanted me to be. And now, as I go to the end of my life and I'm dying, my, ho- my house, my life, my heart is on a firm foundation because I have been seeking Jesus. This is how we concentrate on Jesus and how we fix our eyes on him. We believe in him, first and foremost. When we go through tough times, even persecution, we continue to follow after him. And when we find worry in our life, we bring it before God and we say, no, I want to seek the kingdom of God. And we put into practice the things we know that God has taught us in his word to do, to obey him, to follow hard after him. And when we do this, we find that the fourth and the final challenge that God gives to us to fix our eyes on Jesus is to learn to make my life an analogy of Jesus. I want you to turn to your neighbor and just say, you can be like Jesus. You just said something that's very true. You also said something that would be very powerful in this world. You can be more and more like Jesus. This word consider. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow grow weary and lose heart. The word consider is a Greek word, analogia. And it's the same word where we get analogy from. An analogy means that it corresponds that you have one thing on one side, and now on the other side it corresponds. We have Jesus, and we have us, and our lives is a picture of Jesus. Our lives, we have considered him. We have looked at him. People say that when a husband and wife have been married for a long time together, they begin to look alike. Have you heard that? Yeah, the, the longer you live together, the more you begin to look alike. And, and I just feel really bad for Carol. Um, <laughs> But the reason that they say, you know, people who say that that's kind of true is because as you have lived with this person for a long, long time, you've seen their facial features. You've eaten the same food. You've been to the same places. And your lives begin to mesh. You begin to think alike. You begin to see life together the same way. You'll be able to finish each other's sentence and actually be right. You'll be able to not even have to speak and know what the other person wants. You will do for the other person what you know they want and they don't have to ask because they've known each other. They begin to look like each other. And this is what happens to you and me when we look and we consider our lives to be an analogy of Jesus. And so we consider by staring at him, by attentively observing and analyzing him. And the writer says, just look at the cross. Remember being crossed? I just look at the cross. And what did Jesus do? He endured the worst kind of suffering anyone has ever gone through. He received opposition from sinful men. He was scourged. He was spit on. He was crucified. He was rejected. But he did not lose heart. 
and he did not grow weary. God wants us to not lose heart, to not grow weary. And we have to keep practicing over and over and over again the things that God wants. We have to keep putting our eyes on Jesus over and over and over again. Like a good athlete, if they learn to keep their eye on the ball, they begin to build what's called muscle memory. And their muscles begin to react to the situations of their sport because they have so trained their lives that their muscles do the very thing and take them to the place where they need to be. So the muscle memory of the eye will focus on the ball, even though the defender's coming. The uh, muscle of the eye will focus on the ball, even if it's the curveball. The batter, the receiver, is so focused, they built muscle memory into their lives. And this is what God would have us to do in 2020, to have 2020 vision, to focus our eyes on him, because he doesn't ever get tired or weary. And therefore, we can turn to him when we are tired and weary. The writer Isaiah says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. This is what the writer of Hebrew wants for us. He wants us to run and not grow weary. He wants us to walk and not faint. And we do that by desiring to be an analogy of Jesus. And we become an analogy of Jesus by concentrating on him, by fixing our eyes on him, and by knowing him, and walking with him, and receiving his love over and over again. That's God's promise to us for this year. And that's God's challenge. Let us pray.